0: Let's turn on our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're here wrapping up this summer series looking at Paul's letter, a letter to a new church plant, a letter pointing us to the hope and mission of the church. It's good to be back here with you after being on vacation last week. It's always a joy to worship in another congregation, to hear the word preached, to hear worshipers, but it's it's something different to worship at home with people whose stories you know and love. And so it's a joy to be back with you. If you're new with us, or you're visiting with us, then I, I welcome you this morning. We're turning to 1 Thessalonians 5. Here at the end of this letter, we have seen in the previous two weeks the encouragement that is offered to us in the promise that Jesus is coming again. Jesus has not abandoned us. And, and now Paul, in these final verses, offers us a series of practical instructions which in some ways feel disjointed and disconnected from what has come before, maybe even what is, maybe even from each other. But it's clear that he's showing us the, the pattern of love and service in the church. So listen as I read First Thessalonians 5. I'm going to read verses 12 through 15. Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you, Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Let me pray, having heard God's word, that he would apply it to our lives. Father in heaven, we thank you for your clear instructions to us, your love and concern for the church, a brand new church in in Thessalonica, for your church here in Wilmington, Delaware. And Lord, we pray for your church around the world, those that have already gathered today to worship, those that will gather later as they gather to give praise to you, to acknowledge you to be the Lord. Lord, we pray for the churches right here in our community that are preaching this gospel message. We pray that today, as your word is proclaimed, that unbelievers would turn from their, from their trust in themselves and become believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for you to do that work at Hope Presbyterian Church, our, our sister church a Church Plant in Garnet Valley, Chad's Ford area. Lord, we pray that, that this new church would do new work of reaching people, maybe even those that have disconnected from the church, or those that have never attended, Lord, we pray this morning for Jim Brown, our assistant pastor who serves finishing out this summer in Nova Scotia. Lord, the weather has already turned, begun to turn cold there, and so we pray that it, that, that you would continue to, to warm hearts, that you would give new life, that you would take dead hearts and give living hearts as they hear your word proclaimed. Lord, we pray for that church, even as they transition from this interim ministry to consider the call of a, of a long-term pastor after Jim returns to us here in Delaware. Lord, we pray that the gospel would be proclaimed through the ministries of our church as we launch ministries for the fall. Lord, we pray that the gospel would be heard clearly as we make the name of Jesus Christ known. And so, Lord, do that work in us even now as we listen to your word, as we apply it to our lives. May your spirit transform us. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you were responsible to write a pastor's job description, to list out the things that an elder, a leader in the church should do, what, what would you do? How would you summarize a pastor, an elder's job? Well, my hockey teammates, i play playing a recreational hockey league, they have a, a very quick summary of what a, what a pastor does. He works one morning a week, and it takes four guys to carry all the money up to him. That's their summary. Now, hopefully those of you that have spent a little bit more time, and I think some of them even would know that there's more to it than that, but you would recognize that there's responsibility that comes to those that lead in the church, those that are given authority, and it's more than just showing up once a week. It's living our lives together with those in the church, and so Paul here at the end of this letter, he's writing to a brand new church plan. This church may be mere weeks old. At most, probably a few months have passed since the gospel was first heard in Thessalonica. And yet Paul is already recognizing that leadership is beginning to develop. And so he gives a picture of what that leadership looks like. Look back at verse 12. The command is given to respect, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you he says in verse 13 hold them in highest regard in love because of their work and at this point they probably didn't have a church bulletin they were handing out on sundays they probably didn't list who was officially in charge although it's possible we know that paul on his missionary journeys appointed elders in the churches but what paul is saying is it's it's not so much the title that matters it's the ministry it's not so much the, 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 the job description in terms of a formal label given to it, but it's one who is willing to serve. And, and so really, as we look at, at this passage, we'll see the connection. There's, there's essentially two commands. Verse 12, Paul is saying, we ask you. And verse 14, we urge you, which is taking us back to chapter 4, verse 1, where he's asking and urging us to listen to him. So there's two sets of commands. The first... Leaders serve. But we'll see in a second, the church serves. And so notice that Paul begins with, with those that have, that have risen up into leadership in the church. Those that are, that are serving, those that are working hard, those that are admonishing, those that are over you in the Lord should be acknowledged and respected. And you see that it's, it's not merely that they get the title To exalt themselves. No, this is a ministry of service, of working hard. It's the language that you would use, that that Paul uses, of of toiling with his hands, of of his hard work and labor for the sake of the gospel. Gospel ministry is is not meant to be easy. This is not the the work Sunday mornings and spend the rest of the week at the golf course kind of life. This is meant to be hard work, toil, Labor, And so the command is given to the church, asking the brothers and sisters in the church, those that are welcomed into God's family, to respect, to acknowledge those who are working hard. They're doing it for you, for you, the church. They're working hard among you. And, and we see the authority then that comes with those that are, that are doing this hard work, those that are serving. It's, it's those who are the, that second That second section of verse 12, those who are over you in the Lord. Those who have oversight, those with authority. Now, it's not a human authority. It's not because of their status or position within the broader culture. He doesn't walk in here because, well, he was the CEO. Of course, he should have authority here. No, that's not the description. The description is the one who works hard, the one who serves, the one who by the Lord's command has been placed over you. Now, in some instances, those will be those that that have gifts that have been recognized outside of the church. But it's not because they have a title outside the church that they're given authority within. It's because they serve, because they work hard, because they are over you in the Lord. Which means, whatever free time, whatever power, whatever responsibility, whatever wealth you have, do you see what Paul is saying? It is meant to be used serving others. Because surely there were some within the the Philippian church, surely there were some whose hours were filled from sunrise to sunset, who had no freedom in their schedules to be daily serving others in the church. There were those without power or position or authority in their own lives to be able to give to others, and so they were, they were coming to worship before the sun would rise and, and leaving while it was still dark. There were some who, who would, after toiling hour upon hour, would have to go to serve others, but then there were some who had freedom, who had power, who had time. But you see, what Paul is saying is, those of you that have those things, time and freedom, and energy, and resources, you are to use those by working hard for others. You're not given authority over other people to sort of lord it over them. And, and this is a correction that, that we today, as Americans, need to hear. Because we live in a day and age when, when, sadly, the news headlines are filled with church leaders who have taken positions of authority and used it to harm others, and then use their authority to sort of brush people aside. No, no, those accusations can't be true. Look at me. I hold the title of pastor. It couldn't be my fault. Don't believe what she says. But see, when there is sin in the church, the church should be quick to call it sin, to not let someone hide behind his title or church authority. We should acknowledge sin in the church. And so when you and I as Christians read those headlines of prominent pastors who have fallen, of entire denominations destroyed by sin, you and I should be heartbroken. Because that's not why God put people over us in the Lord. He put them over us so they could work hard, they could serve us, they could even, as he continues, admonish you. Now you might think, well, I'm okay with people having authority as long as it's in service of me as long as it's for my clear and obvious good and comfort. But admonition is not always comfortable, right? If somebody comes and tells you, this is what you have done wrong, if someone comes to offer you correction, rarely do we find that to be enjoyable. But that's the reason God has placed people over us in the church. In the authority of the Lord, they are there to admonish us. And you could imagine in a brand new church plant, the, the chaos, those whose lives have been filled, we, we saw back in chapter 4, with, with sexual immorality. Then when, when a leader stands and says, that is not what Jesus Christ wants of your life, you could hear the immediate response. Well, you know, who are you to say anything to me? You should stay out of my business. What happens in my private life should remain my private life. But, but no, not, not within the church. Because every part of your life, is under the authority of Christ, if you have acknowledged him to be the Lord. And it means the leaders of the church are given the responsibility to correct your behavior, to correct your theology, to correct you when you go wrong. Which, if you dislike it when it happens, might give you a sense that not every leader in the church enjoys slapping you, like, you know, catching you in the act, or having to confront you. And actually, if he does, if he's excited about that, then he's probably not in the right position. If he's excited about checking into your life just so that he can catch you, then then he's not one who should serve as a leader, serve as an elder in Christ's church. Because to admonish another means that we first have to do what Jesus tells us, to look at the sin in our own lives, to extend a speck in in our own eyes before we deal with your sin, which means... Every time your sin has to be confronted, I have to do the work of confronting my own sin. I would much rather avoid that. I'd much rather live under the comfort of, well, he's the pastor. And actually, look at the back of the bulletin. His name's all the way at the top of the list. He's a senior pastor. And there should be some authority that comes with that, some, some freedom to, have to, 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 to avoid the, the, the prying eyes. But no. No, when I come to admonish you, it means I do so, Paul will tell the Galatian church in Galatians 6.1, I do so gently, having examined my own life, lest I too should sin, because I know the brokenness in my own heart. So you don't like the confrontation, but neither do I. But it's the responsibility of those that lead in the church that have been given authority to confront your sin. Which means, and maybe this is, this is, this is true for you, even if this is your first time in a church, you think, oh, this is the problem with church. They're always trying to tell me what I've done wrong. They're always trying to point out, you need to do this and stop doing that and, 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 and just stay out of my business. See, but if, if you end up going to church and week after week, nothing in your life ever needs correction or nothing in your, your, your belief system needs to be adjusted, if week after week you are hearing a message at church and nothing in you has to change to conform, then you're not actually hearing the gospel. Or maybe the gospel is being preached, but you're so resistant that you're, you're refusing to listen. Because if God is who he says he is, the supreme commander of the entire universe, the one who created you, who made you, who knows who you are, then when God's word is read, when it's applied to your life, it should make you at times uncomfortable. It should correct you. It should point out sin in your life. You should expect to walk into church, yes, to be encouraged in the hope of the gospel, but also be confronted with your own sin. Because the role of those who have authority over you is to admonish you. And so, Paul, what is the response that that he wants from us? He wants us to respect, to acknowledge those who work hard. Verse 12. Verse 13, he says, hold them in the highest regard. Acknowledge their leadership and do so in love. Take that admonition in love. Respond by by thanking those that that have leadership and authority in your lives, whether they're small group leaders or Sunday school teachers or, or elders or deacons in the church. When they come alongside you to offer correction, thank them lovingly. That they are there to protect you, to serve you, to care for you. We are those that are meant, verse 13 tells us, to live in peace with each other. And it's a joy to serve in a, in a church that is eager to hear God's word. But it's one thing for us to do it broadly in the generic sense. It's much harder for us to do in the specifics when I have to have my specific sins confronted and challenged. And we're to do so in love. See, we live in a day and age when when telling someone else they're wrong seems uncomfortable. But that's what we're meant to do in the church. Movie star Chris Pratt, he's in the Guardians of the Galaxy, the the Jurassic World series, one of the the most famous faces in Hollywood. He accepted an MTV Movie Award earlier this summer. And he got up and he gave what he called his, his nine principles, his nine rules for life. And some of them were silly and nonsensical, but some of them were profound. It was called the generational leadership award, which meant you had this man in his 30s speaking to teenagers. But he took that responsibility serious. And one of the things that he said near the end of this very brief, this somewhat silly speech was was this profound truth, a reminder about our errors, our sinfulness, and our only hope of being found in grace and forgiveness. Chris Pratt said to the listening audience, and, and then it was picked up by media outlets, he said, nobody is perfect. People are going to tell you you're perfect just the way you are. You are not. You are imperfect. And if you're willing to accept that, you can find grace. And grace is a gift. Grace is was paid for with someone else's blood. That's a pretty profound thing to hear on MTV. And yet, some of the reactions to it, much of it was thankful that that this man had spoken something profound, mixed in with advice about how to get your dog to take his medication. The nonsense that comes at an MTV movie awards. But he's pointing out, it's a lie to think your life is already perfect, that you're already perfect, that you don't have to change, that there aren't things in you that need to be corrected. And I don't know, I've not sat down with Chris Pratt. He hasn't taken my calls yet. I don't know what he really believes, but what he's doing is pointing to the grace of God, the work of Jesus Christ, that there is forgiveness when we admit our sin and failures. And so when someone comes to admonish us, that's a gift to us. Someone who loves us, and so we should respond with love. But Paul doesn't merely speak to those who have authority in the church, those who are over us in the Lord. He speaks to all of us. Verse 12 gave that that command, I'm asking you, but it's there, not in a way that you know, well, you could say yes or no. This is when someone with authority, like when my mother would say, would you take out the trash? There's an implied, obvious command. You are going to take out the trash whether you say yes or no, so you should say yes. So Paul, in verse 12, is asking them, commanding them to respect the leaders, but, but then he, in verse 14, urges the brothers and sisters in the church. He's saying, leaders serve and the church serves. The pastoral responsibilities, the the care for one another, doesn't merely fall to those in positions of authority. It falls on every one of us. Everyone in the church is given the responsibility to care for each other. And so Paul turns his commands then on the church. He says, we urge you, brothers, this is verse 14, warn those who are idle. Warn them. He says then, and continues, Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. And you notice the commands. It matters which, which verb goes with which person. You don't encourage those who are idle. Hey, great job doing nothing. Keep it up. No, you warn them. You encourage those that are timid. You help those that are weak. You don't warn the weak that, that look out if you, if you don't get up and do something, those of you that are, that are unable to help yourselves, then, then you're going to get crushed. No, you, who do you warn? You warn those who are idle. Now, that's a word, a description that, that can fit when we look back at, at chapter 4. When we look back there at verse 11 in chapter 4, when, we, when Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands just as we told you. This idea of being idle can describe laziness. Those that, that, well, hey, if Jesus is coming back like next week, then all this work I've been doing is pretty much pointless. You know what? I'm just going to, I'll kind of take a vacation. You know, and if I, you know, run out of groceries before the week is over, then other people in the church, I mean, they're still working. I mean, they haven't figured it out. They'll, they'll just take care of me. So Paul is giving the correction that you need to work hard. You are meant to, to do meaningful work with your hands, with your life. You are to invest in the good of, of the community so that you can serve others. But, but this idleness is not merely those that are sitting back with their feet up. It can be the busybodies. Because the, the Greek word that, that underlines it really is, is talking about someone who creates disorder. Someone who is unruly or disruptive. So they might be the most active person that you know. But in a sense, they're in neutral. They're just idling because they're not really pushing the mission of the church word. They may be revving the engine very loudly, but they're not going anywhere. They're just disrupting the good that's taking place, creating disruptions for the church. And so what are we to do? We're to warn them. There's a danger. You're not fulfilling your purpose in the church. You have opportunities to serve others. But those that are timid, those that are faint-hearted, Literally, in the Greek, it's, it's a combination of words that means those that are weak of soul. And this is the heartbroken in the church. Those that are devastated by worry or doubt. Those that, that are crushed under the weight of persecution that they're already feeling. What are we to do? Encourage them. Come alongside them. We don't merely go to those that are, that are timid and warn them. Sit up and just believe and get on with your life. No, I mean, there might be moments like that when you in wisdom have to figure out, is this person idle or is this person timid? And there's wisdom to apply. But in most instances, it means coming alongside the one who is, who is feeling the weight of worry, offering encouragement. And that's why when you, when you feel that worry, when you feel that isolation pressing in on you, your tendency will be to separate yourself from the church. It would just be easier to not have to go through all the work to get myself there. The anxiety that builds within you that, that then that limits your participation. And so, well, you know, getting to community group this week would be, would be hard. But do you see, the, the very thing that you need, the encouragement of others will only come when you let them into your life. I mean, sometimes as a pastor, I have to, I have to encourage you as church members, let other people serve you. Some of you, I, I, I have to try and convince you, you need to get up and stop being idle and serve. But, but, but for many of us, that's the easier thing to do, to help others. But Paul is saying, no, in the church you are meant when you are the one who is feeling the weight of worry. You need others to come alongside and encourage you. Paul then continues, he says, help the weak. Now that could describe those that are physically weak, those that are sick, those that are in the hospital. It could describe those that are financially poor, Help them. They are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we might want to, but first, let me run through the checklist of of whether or not this person deserves my help. And there are times when our deacons have to be wise with the way they, they spend funds in the church, but our heart's tendency and attitude should be to help. Help those in the church that are weak. And then that final command there of verse 14, Be patient. With everyone. I mean, really, if you and I could live that, just that one command be patient with everyone. Think about how many of the problems and frustrations in your life could be solved if you were merely patient, if you were merely willing to listen to the other, if you were merely willing to, rather than rush to judgment, stop and figure out is this person weak or idle? Is this person lazy or discouraged if we were patient with each other? See, Paul's commands for the church are that we would serve and care for each other. Yes, leaders serve, but the church serves each other. Paul then will continue in the the verses which follow, and we see in verse 15, offering us a continuation of, of commands for us about how we should live in verse 15 in relationship. And we'll see next week. About what that looks like in our in our own lives and our hearts and our spiritual growth. But but verse 15 continues this theme that, that the church is meant to serve. So he says, make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Don't pay back wrong for wrong. But but when we're wronged, what's our immediate response? This needs to be made right. The quickest and safest and actually probably most satisfying way for me to make this right would be to make sure I make sure the person who harmed me feels the harm. And so I can retaliate in kind. I mean, Paul is essentially saying, remember the the Old Testament commands, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which were meant in the Old Testament to limit escalating retaliation. Like gang warfare in a a city where, where, well, you shot one guy, we'll take two and to respond to those two we now need to take four and the violence just escalates and the old testament was saying no let let the let the punishment fit the crime but paul is pressing us as christian believers after the the resurrection of christ with christ reigning on his throne to to trust more fully to not repay back wrong with wrong that doesn't forbid us from seeking justice of seeking to, to have those that are that have, that have done wrong to be held to account. But it means you and I are not meant to take personal vengeance. Paul will say that explicitly in Romans chapter 12, a, a passage which, which really kind of expands on the verses here, which means we can understand this is not merely just Paul sort of throwing down a random assortment of, well, you know, what are the random things I'd like to tell the church today? No, this was a, a logical, considered, orderly, connected way for the church, for leaders to serve, and for the church to serve one another. Because Paul will explicitly say the reason we don't retaliate is because we trust a God who will retaliate. In Romans 12, Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. To not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, "It is mine to avenge; I will repay," says the Lord. So the reason you and I don't have to exact justice, exact revenge now, the reason you and I can can turn from that tendency within our own hearts is because we know there is a God who will do what is right, a God who will not. Let sin go unpunished. And consider, consider what Jesus has done for us. Jesus did not repay wrong with wrong. But when he was sinned against, he bore that sin in his body on the tree. Jesus, when when he was harmed, he didn't respond by bringing immediate judgment, but he took the judgment upon himself. Think of the words that, that you read. In Philippians 2, our, our confession of faith today, where the apostle is, is describing to, to the, the church, the church just down the road from Thessalonica, he's describing to them the command to love one another. He says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than himself. Church, Serve one another. Why? Because your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do You see, as believers in Christ, our love for one another is motivated by the love of Christ. Our service for one another is in response to the servant love of Jesus displayed for us. The reason we don't have to retaliate, the reason we can fulfill the commands that, that Paul gives to the church to be kind to one another, be patient with each other, is because we have seen the love of God displayed for us. And you see how then this reciprocal love will work in the church. We love leaders who admonish us, who are over us in the Lord, who are working hard among us. They love us by doing that work. And then we love each other. And so that the, the love that we share, that we show to leaders, is love that's brought back to us. Why? Because of the love of Jesus Christ at work in us. Dr. Rob Marsh serves in a small rural community in the Shenandoah Valley. It's, his town has 241 people that live there. And as a medical doctor, he could have taken a job at a, at a bigger city. He could have taken employment elsewhere, but, but he was recently named the Country Doctor of the Year, Recognized, recognizing those doctors that serve smaller communities, that serve from cradle To grave, that serve people of all ages, that serve those with runny noses and those with more serious diseases. Dr. Marsh's community considers him a hero, but not merely because he's there serving for them. His previous job was as a physician with the U.S. Army's elite Delta Force he was serving. He led the medical team that helped rescue the soldiers that were trapped as part of the aftermath of the Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia. And in that he was wounded by a mortar and airlifted to Germany. See, Dr. Marsh is loved by his community for his service to them. But he says he's there in that town because of their love for him. When his life was on the line in the hospital, he says, my local church here in this little town held a 24-hour prayer vigil for me. And I turned the corner. I survived. So a few years later, as he retired from the military, he went back home. Because where else would he serve than among the people who love him? He can show their love because he says, as far as I'm concerned, these people saved my life. Love for one another. Continuing in sacrificial love for each other. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we rejoice in the hope of the gospel that Jesus, our Savior, would give his life for us. And Lord, I pray that that would encourage us and motivate us, those that feel weak and burdened by the, 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 the sadness, the sorrows, the worries of life, that we would find encouragement from those that, that we stand shoulder to shoulder with. Lord, I pray for those that have been called to, and placed in, in positions of authority over us. Lord, I pray that they would serve us, that we would, we would respond in love to their care for us. Lord, let us be those that are quick to receive admonition, quick to receive correction in love. Lord, do that work of changing our hearts. And and even now, for those that that hear this message, that have heard of the love of Jesus, but have not yet trusted in Him, Lord, I pray that now they would put their trust in Jesus Christ, admitting their sin, turning and finding their hope in the Savior. And so, Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.